Blog Talk Radio. Right, the real Billy that answers for life's most important questions. You're sending most control here on Truthy Toll Radio, and to get started with the lesson, this one is called One Lord, One Faith, One God, the Exclusivity of Christianity by John MacArthur. Open your Bible to Ephesians 4. And we have been in Ephesians 4 for a month, I think. But we finally have arrived at verses 4, 5, and 6. And this is a very, very important moment to stop and consider a far-reaching reality that is clearly indicated here. Let me read Ephesians 4, 4, 5, and 6. There is one body and one Spirit, 
just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Here is the singularity of Christianity. Seven times you have the word one repeated. This is a declaration of the exclusivity of the true faith, the true religion. There is only one body, the church, one Spirit, the Holy Spirit, one hope, that of heaven for those in Christ. There's only one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God. That should make it abundantly clear that there are no others. No others. But it seems to have somehow escaped this generation of uh, so-called Christians and even so-called evangelicals because in a recent survey, an inexcusable display of ignorance was manifest. Sixty-six percent of American Christians say many religions lead to eternal life. That's two out of three. Fifty-two percent of evangelicals say Many religions can lead to eternal life. Forty-eight percent of evangelicals said that God accepts the worship of all religious people. Now, let me correct that. One hundred percent of true Christians say no other religion can save. One hundred percent of true evangelicals say no other religion can save. One hundred percent of evangelicals say God rejects all worship other than that which is consistent with His divine revelation in Christ. How do we get to a place where people declare they are Christians and evangelicals and basically don't even understand the most foundational reality of what is true religion. How does this happen? On the face, you might say they, um, they, they lack instruction. And you would probably be right. But even deeper than that, I think they lack courage. Because the reason people cave in to say that other religions can give eternal life is so that they don't wind up offending other people because that's hard to deal with. But on the face of it, it's impossible that Christianity is true and other religions are true. This is the basic law of reason called the law of non-contradiction. Just from a rational standpoint. The law of non-contradiction is A cannot be non-A at the same time in the same way. 
Let me spread that out over Christian theology. If Yahweh is the one and only living and true God, there is no other God. If the Bible is the one true revealed revelation of God, there is no other revelation. If the Son of God is Jesus, who is alone Lord and alone King, there is no other Lord. If Jesus Christ is the only Savior from sin and eternal judgment, there is no other Savior. If sinners can be saved only by the gospel of Jesus Christ, then they can't be saved by any other means. If people can only escape hell by trusting in the person and work of Christ, they cannot escape hell by any other avenue. If sinners will be in hell forever if they reject Christ, there is no other way for them to escape. If the sole work that saves sinners is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then no other work can save sinners. If the gospel is the only saving truth and all other claims are lies, if there is only one true religion, then all others are false. If there is only one true God who is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then there is no other God. So you get the idea. All of those things that I postulated for you are Bible claims. I was just giving you what the Bible says. One God. One divine revelation. One Lord. One Savior. One Gospel. One means of escaping hell. That's what the Bible claims. And it is essentially that that is its greatest offense. And because it is such an offense, people cave in and rather than be faithful to that Gospel, they come up with ridiculous things like, you can get to heaven by any religion. A lie from the devil. Deuteronomy 4.35 says, The Lord, He is God. There is no other besides Him. That's the exclusivity of the true God. Deuteronomy 4.39, The Lord, He is God in heaven alone and on the earth below. There is no other. 1 Kings 8, verse 60, The Lord is God there is no one else. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, some very important instruction was given to the people of Israel as they stood on the brink of entering the land that God had promised to them. This is what God says to them in Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That is to say, there is nothing left for you to love any other God. He demands 
singular and complete worship. Down in verse 13 of Deuteronomy 6, we read, You shall fear only the Lord your God. You shall worship Him and swear by His name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you. For the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you, and He will wipe you off the face of the earth. So, if you entertain the idea that there is any other God, you come under God's fury, and He will wipe you off the face of the earth. In the 8th chapter of Deuteronomy, and verse 19, it shall come about if you ever forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you today that you will surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so you shall perish because you would not listen to the voice of the Lord your God. That's a spiritual death and eternal death sentence pronounced on anyone who worships any other god. In the 11th chapter of Deuteronomy, verse 16, Beware that your hearts are not deceived, and that you do not turn away and serve other gods and worship them. Or the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and He will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain on, and the ground will not yield its fruit, and you will perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. God basically pronounces judgment in a death sentence on anyone in Israel who worshiped any other God because there is no other God. The New Testament doesn't at all back off on that. 1 Timothy 2.5 For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Acts 4.12 There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus said in John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Me. John 3.36 he who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Galatians 1, 8 and 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven were to proclaim to you a gospel contrary to the gospel we have proclaimed to you, let him be accursed, damned. As we have said before, so I say again now, that if any man is proclaiming to you a gospel contrary to what you received, let him be accursed. And 1 John 5.20, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. And the next verse, John says, based on that, you better keep yourself from idols. 
the most serious thing that you could possibly do in this world was to believe that there is any way to eternal life apart from Christ, apart from the Gospel. That, that is condemned from the Pentateuch in Scripture all the way to its end. Christianity is the only way. We're talking about unity here in this section. And I just remind you that our unity is not based on inclusivity. It's based on exclusivity. It is the unity in verse 1 of a sovereign call, a divine call. It is the unity of spiritual virtue in verses 2 and 3, the characteristics of those who are called and gifted by the Holy Spirit. And it is founded on this creed One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. As we've already learned in this book, the one body is the true church. The one spirit is the Holy Spirit. The one hope is eternal glory. The one Lord is Jesus Christ. The one faith is the revelation of truth in the Word of God. The one baptism is that which declares the believer's union with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. And the one God is the true and living God, the only true God. In John 17.3, Scripture says, This is eternal life, that they may know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom You have One God, look at that in verse 6. One God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. What that is saying is there is no room anywhere for any other God. He is the Father of all, which is to say He is the source, He is the Creator. He is over all, which is to say He is transcendent and sovereign. He is through all, which is to say He is imminent and present working in His creation. And in you all, which is to say He has taken up residence in believers. Only one God. Created everything, rules everything, permeates everything, and dwells in the hearts of His people. This is the exclusive truth necessary for salvation. Apart from this truth, there is no hope. No hope. Look at Romans 1 for just a moment. Romans 1.18 The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You suppress the truth of the one true God and you come under His wrath. Verse 21 says, even though they knew God, that is, God had revealed Himself in His creation, they didn't honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools 
and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible men and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Let me tell you what that's saying. When people reject the one true God who has manifested Himself in His creation and in the law written in the human heart, when they reject God, when they do not honor Him or give thanks or worship Him, they become empty in their speculations. The light goes out inside. They think they're wise and they become fools and they invent false religion. Religion is not man at his highest. Religion is man at his lowest. Religion is an invention by man to replace the true God and the true faith. He is inexcusable because the manifestation of God is in the world and even in Him. But when people reject the true God, they don't find Him another way. They come up with religion. They make idols out of birds and beasts, creeping things. They end up proud, empty, evil, condemned to wrath. Religion is not man at its highest. False religion is man in the sewer of human religion. 1 Corinthians is another text of Scripture that is very important in this discussion. Verse 18 also, 1 Corinthians 1, the word of the cross is foolishness. There's that word foolishness again. In Romans 1, they rejected God and entered into the folly of religion. Here they reject the word of the cross, which is the gospel. They reject that. And what do they get? Human wisdom. Verse 20, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. When you abandon the word of the cross and you abandon the gospel and you come up with human wisdom, all you get is more foolishness. Romans 1 says they rejected God, they became fools, and they invented religion. 1 Corinthians 1 says they rejected the gospel, they became fools, and they went in the direction of human wisdom, which is foolishness. But that's what the perishing people do. Look while you're in 1 Corinthians 1 over at chapter 2, verse 11. Well, we'll look at verse 10. True revelation from God comes through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. If you don't receive revelation of the truth from God by the agency of the Holy Spirit, which of course is the Scripture, since the Spirit is the author of Scripture, if you don't receive that, you have no hope of knowing God, being forgiven, escaping hell. Verse 11, an illustration. Who knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, the spirit of foolishness and human wisdom, 
but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Where do we find that on the pages of Scripture? All human wisdom does is lead to ignorance. So again I say, that is point of most sophisticated religion. Man is at his most debased point of rebellion against God. The only way you can ever know anything about God is to know what the Spirit says about God. The Spirit alone knows the thoughts of God. He has revealed them on the pages of Holy Scripture. Apart from that, everything is folly. Nothing delivers you from the wrath of God. And you are part of the perishing. One day in Acts 17, as it's recorded, that Paul went up to Mars Hill. All kinds of deities were represented there by statues, and Paul looked over all of it. It's supposed to be the highest level of human reason in the world. Athens. Philosophy. They had all these deities. And they were not satisfied, obviously, because they created one more altar to the unknown God. If you had satisfaction, you wouldn't need an anonymous God. Paul then filled in the blank and taught them about the true God who created everything. You can have all the religions in the world, but if you don't have the true religion, you will never know God and you will never escape judgment. Natural reason, spiritual feelings, complex religions are expressions of human wisdom, expressions of rebellion against the true God and the true religion. They are foolish, idolatrous, and deadly in an eternal sense. But is it just human? Go a little further into 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Is man just so debased in his rebellion against God that he concocts these religions which damn his soul? Or is there some other element in that effort? Down to verse 19. What do I mean then? 1 Corinthians 10.19 That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything... Or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles or the nations sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. That's the truth of what's going on. False religion is not just human. It is devilish. It is demonic. It is hellish. It is from Satan, whose messengers are disguised as angels of light because... Satan himself is an angel of light who disguises himself in false religion. So this religion is not just a human concoction. It is the trafficking of demons. The trafficking of demons. And Satan is the father of lies. Paul borrows that, of course, from Deuteronomy 32.17 where he talks about 
religion being sacrifices offered to demons. I don't think people know that, but that's the truth. Psalm 106.37 says, they even sacrifice sons and daughters to demons. When they sacrificed their children to the god Molech, they thought they were pacifying a, a real deity who, if they gave up their children, would bring favor into their lives. And the Bible says they were sacrificing their children to demons. False religion cannot save anyone. It is an operation of hell. Now, I want to go back to Romans 10, which I read earlier, because this is a key portion of Scripture. Romans 10. If there was any group of people who we might say could reject the gospel of Jesus Christ and still make it to heaven, uh, we, we might think it would be the Jews. And I hear this from evangelical leaders. We, we might say, well, look, at least they have the right God in mind, the God of the Old Testament. At least they have the right laws in mind, the Ten Commandments and all other expressions of it. Uh, at, at least they're looking to the one true God. Isn't that enough? Wouldn't that be enough to get them in? Well, we can find out in Romans 10. They should have the best shot at it. But notice how it begins in verse 1. Brethren, writes Paul, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, for Israel, he's been talking about them, is for their salvation. I, I want their salvation, which is to say, they don't have it. In fact, back in chapter 9, verse 1, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Yes, they're Israelites. They were adopted as God's sons in the Old Covenant. They saw the glory of God. They had the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple services, the promises, the fathers, and the promise even of Messiah. They had it all. But I'm telling you, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief over them, even with all of that. Why? Because they are not saved. And that takes you back to chapter 10, verse 1. My prayer to God for them is for their salvation. They had no salvation. Earlier in the book of Romans, Paul said, by the law, no flesh will be justified. No people were more given the opportunity to know the truth to know God savingly than the Jews. Especially when Jesus came and Jesus said, I'm telling you the truth and the truth that I'm telling you can 
set you free because currently you're under the bondage of your father, the devil. Jesus said Judaism is an operation of Satan. And when He said that, they were insulted and outraged, and it led to them having the Romans kill their own Messiah. In Judaism, there have always been Pharisees and fastidious rabbis. They saw themselves as the very agents of the true God. Many of them were venerated as teachers of the Old Testament. They carried a certain amount of esoteric authority because of the way they handled the Old Testament. They were the resident truth-tellers about God. But Paul said they need to be saved. What does that mean? That their sins were not forgiven? They were under divine judgment on their way to eternal hell. My heart's desire, my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. What was wrong? I mean, they came so far. What was missing? Well, verse 2, I testify about them. They have a zeal for God, right God, right attitude, but not in accordance with what? With knowledge, epignosis. Zeal for God, misinformed. Zeal for God, misdirected. And they sat under an eternal death sentence. That is exactly how all false religions are to be understood. All of them. Judaism and all the rest. They do not have salvation because there's only one way to be saved. Let's look a little more closely at their condition and the condition of people in all false religions. Here's their first problem. They didn't understand the righteousness of God, verse 3, for not knowing about God's righteousness. We'll stop there. Here's the first damning reality. They did not know how holy God is, how righteous He is. They did not understand that though in human life there might be degrees of righteousness and degrees of holiness, there might be a, a kind of a scale with God, it is only absolute holiness and absolute righteousness. They failed to understand that God was just exactly what we sung this morning. Holy, holy, holy. Absolutely holy. So holy, He was intolerant of every sin and punishes every sin in the full. They wanted to think what most sinners want to think, that God is love and God is mercy and God is compassion and God is kind, and that's sort of His dominant side. But no, God is holy. They didn't know about God's righteousness. He is too righteous to ever tolerate any sin that is unforgiven and not atoned for. What needed to happen to them was essentially they needed to take a look at the law and define the law the way God defined the law, as a standard of perfect righteousness. The law from love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, down through the Ten Commandments, down through all the Old Testament indications of God's moral character and His holy nature and His law, clearly laid out what God loved and what God hated. 
And the Jews, even to this day, lower the law. They lower the righteousness of God. They make God less holy than He is, less righteous than He is. And they have to do that because if they're going to ascend to Him by law-keeping, they've got to lower the standard. All evangelism then begins with the absolute righteousness and holiness of God as laid out in His law. His perfect virtue. His hatred of every sin and every sinner. And the curse upon every sin and every sinner. You can't lower God's holiness. That was the first error. The second was to accommodate this, they elevated their own righteousness. Verse 3, not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. They didn't subject themselves to the, to the righteousness of God. What does that mean? They should have subjected themselves to the righteousness of God like the publican fell on the ground, pounded their chest, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and save me. They, they, they should have come under the crushing weight of the law and cried for mercy. But instead, they lightened up the law by lowering the righteous standard of God, an attack on His holiness. And then they elevated themselves from their true condition as wretched sinners to a point where they thought they were righteous enough to come to God on their own. If you're going to believe in a work system, you've got to lower the righteousness of God and raise your own. So instead of submitting to the righteousness of God and crying for mercy under the full weight of that which violates His righteousness, they thought less of Him and more of themselves and that's what led them to a works system. Psalm 95.10, God says, For forty years I loathed that generation. I hated them. He said, They are people who err in their heart, and they do not know My ways. People need to be brought under the full weight of the law, which damns them. So, they were ignorant of the righteousness of God. They were ignorant of their own unrighteousness. Thirdly, they were ignorant of the provision of Christ. In verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. They didn't understand that the Messiah had come to remove the threat of the law. To remove the curse of the law. He actually was made a curse for us. They, they didn't see Christ as the One who came to be the end of the law. Christ is the end of the law in terms of the law's threat. He is the end of the law in terms of the law's reign. He is the end of the law in terms of the law's fulfillment. He is the end of the law in terms of satisfying the law's penalty. He breaks the power of the law by taking on Himself the full punishment so that the sins of all who ever believe are paid for by Christ and the cross 
And the Father can remove the curse of the law because Christ took the curse. How does that happen? It happens, end of verse 4, to everyone who believes. Not by works. Christ is the end of trying to earn righteousness by works. By law. Paul tried that, he says, in Philippians 3, his whole life. And then he came to understand the righteousness of God, which is by faith, which is given to the penitent, believing sinner as a gift. So here is Israel. You would think that if there's any religion that is going to be accepted into God's kingdom, it would be them. But no, they're not saved. Why? Because they have the wrong understanding of God's righteousness, the wrong understanding of their own unrighteousness, and the wrong understanding of the work of Christ. And then they had another error, the wrong understanding of the place of faith. Verse 4, righteousness is a gift from God to those who believe. He says in verse 5, Moses writes that a man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. Oh, you want to live by law? Okay, you have to earn your way to heaven by keeping the law perfectly. If you ever break one law, one time, it's over. So you want to practice the righteousness that is based on law? Then you have to live perfectly by that righteousness which no one can do. On the other hand, the righteousness based on faith in verse 6 speaks as follow, follows. It doesn't say, oh, I'll have to ascend into heaven to bring Christ down or, or I'll have to d descend into the abyss to bring Christ up from the dead. I'll have to go on some pilgrimage. I'll, I'll, I'll have to somehow get elevated spiritually. I'll have to get into some Gnostic category or some esoteric trance to go up or down or somewhere to access this, this righteousness that I need. No. That's not what the righteousness of faith says. What it says is in verse 8, the word concerning the righteousness of faith is near you, in your mouth, in your heart. How? That is the word of faith which we are preaching. You don't have to have some spiritual journey. You don't have to have some supernatural pilgrimage. You just have to hear the gospel of faith which we are preaching. And here it is, verse 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. How incredible is that? Okay, you can't be saved by law. <laughs> Do we have to make some pilgrimage into, into heaven and some spiritual plane? Or do we have to go down into some depth of spiritual darkness and somehow find Christ and bring Him up or pull Him down? No. No, you, um, you just need to confess Jesus as Lord. That's how to be saved. And believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. Why? Why does it say believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead? Because if you believe that God raised Him from the dead, then you understand that God who raised Him 
by raising him, validated every single thing about him. His eternal existence, his incarnation, virgin birth, sinless life, substitutionary death, all validated. And every word he ever said, and every miracle he ever performed, every thought he ever had, every act he ever did, Father validated. To believe that God raised Jesus from the dead is to believe that Jesus Christ is all that Scripture says He is, and that's the Father's validation. Do that and you'll be saved. That's amazing. Do that and you'll be saved. Believe. Confess, verse 10, resulting in salvation. This is the message of the Gospel. And this is the only way. The only way. The Jews were ignorant of the righteousness of God, ignorant of their own unrighteousness, ignorant of the provision of Christ, ignorant of the place of faith, and ignorant of the extent of salvation. Verse 11, the Scripture says, whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed or will not be ashamed. That's so important. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you will never be disappointed. Whosoever believes. This is very important because the Jews had a lot of problems with the idea that Gentiles could be saved. It was hard to swallow for them that God would accept the Gentiles. Witness Jonah. But whoever believes will never be disappointed, never put to shame, never rejected. For verse 12, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. I mean, that was outrageous for the Jews. It's only one way to get to heaven. One way to be saved. And it's through Christ. You have to call on Him. Believe in Him. Now that leads us to a very important moment as we conclude. What are the implications of this? If 66% of American Christians think you can get to heaven through any religion, I would conclude that they have no interest in evangelizing anybody. Why would they do that? If evangelicals, over half of them, believe that God accepts any religion and uh, hears any religious person's prayers, then you've just, um, you've just taken the toughest thing out of your life. You don't have to confront anybody. And that's convenient, isn't it? Because confronting people about their sin and divine judgment is the hardest task we have, but it is the only reason the church is in the world. And so here comes... The mandate, verse 14, How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? You can't be saved unless you believe. How will they believe in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without what? A preacher. Somebody has to tell them, verse 15, How will they preach unless they are sent? That's why we're here. 
I think the ignorance of the quote-unquote evangelical Christian world is partly willful ignorance because they lack courage. They lack conviction. They lack love and zeal. Like Paul said, who could almost wish himself accursed for the salvation of others. There's a kind of comfortable Christianity that doesn't want to have to confront people with the law of God, pronounce condemnation on them and their false religion. But that's not loving. That's the most unloving thing a Christian could ever do. Make some non-believer think they were okay. And oh, by the way, if you do tell them and they believe, verse 15 says, you will fulfill this. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. I don't know anybody who became a believer who resented the person that led them to Christ. Those are the most beautiful feet that ever get into our life. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Now, admittedly, not everybody's going to accept it, but that's verse 16. They didn't all heed the good news. They didn't do it when Jesus came. That's what it says in Isaiah 53. Lord, who has believed our report? Not everybody will believe, but verse 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. There's only one way to be saved, and that's faith in Christ risen. There's only one way to access that faith, and that is that it would be heard and believed. And so we live to preach the Word concerning Christ. I'll close with a passage in Second Thessalonians 1. Verse 7, the middle of the verse says, The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution, judgment, to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. How do you avoid eternal destruction? You have to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise You for the clarity of Your Word. Scripture has this astonishing clarity because it must, it must, if people are to be saved, help us to understand that we can't leave anybody in the false comfort of worshiping demons in some other religion. But we have to bring the Gospel. And we know that not everybody will hear, but for those who do, it will be a bond that can only be expressed in the language of Isaiah. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. May we understand that we're here to fulfill the Great Commission to go into all the world, make disciples, teaching them to observe everything that our Lord commands. 
and that You go with us and You never forsake us. Empower us and make us all fruitful for Your glory. Amen. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible Teacher with Grace to You. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace to You's website at gty.org. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org, and it includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file.
God is in control. This is Ken Ham, a publisher of our Apologetics award-winning family magazine, Answers. This world seems to be getting crazier every single day. How should Christians respond? Well, we're going to look at that this week. The first thing we must remember is that no matter what's happening in the world, God is in control. He's sovereign. The Bible says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Also, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And finally, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Christians should never despair over what's happening. God isn't surprised, and he will accomplish his plan, regardless of what man thinks. Learn more about God's Word when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again. Find many others like it or view a complete transcript at AnswersRadio.com.
Contend for the faith. This is Ken Ham, CEO of Answers in Genesis, the Creation Museum, and Ark Encounter. I'm often asked if I think we're in the last days, and I always say, we don't know for sure, but we do know we're closer to the end than we were. So no matter how close we are to the end, what should we be doing while we await Christ's triumphant return? Well, the book of Jude commands us to contend for the faith. We're to call out false teaching and false teachers, have answers for the hope we have, and courageously proclaim the gospel. And we're to uphold sound doctrine. That's what contending for the faith looks like. And the only way we can do all that is if we know God's Word and are firmly rooted in it. So if you want to be Christ's ambassador, make sure you get into your Bible. Plan your visit to the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter when you go to our website, AnswersRadio.com. The whole family will love the Bible teaching. Visit AnswersRadio.com.
Preach the Gospel. This is Ken Ham, author, speaker and blogger on the Bible's reliability and authority. This week we're looking at what to do in the perilous times we live in. Yes, freedom is vanishing, anti-Christian sentiment is rising and persecution is looming. How should Christians respond? Well, we're still to preach the gospel. Most of church history is a story of persecution and yet the gospel has always marched on. The Bible has remained and the church has continued to grow. When Jesus gave us the Great Commission, he didn't put an expiration date on it. So no matter what's going on, we continue to preach the gospel, trusting that the Lord will build his church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. In this dark world, have hope. The gospel, it still saves. Discover more about the gospel message when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again or find hundreds of others like it at AnswersRadio.com. Dreaming 
Refuse to compromise. This is Ken Ham on a mission to call the church back to God's word and the gospel. Many Christians today are compromising on biblical truth. They're trying to be more appealing to the world. But we should never compromise God's word. Scripture tells us that people will hate God and his word, and they will hate his followers. So we shouldn't be surprised when we speak truth and the world comes against us. But the proper response isn't to compromise with the world's ideas. It's to stand on God's word, then leaving the consequences in God's hands. As the world gets darker, Christians will look stranger to the world, and our beliefs will seem even more foolish. But God says it's the wisdom of the world that's foolish, and true wisdom begins with Him. Discover more about the truth of God's Word, the Gospel, and standing on God's Word at AnswersRadio.com. And subscribe to receive free daily insights at AnswersRadio.com. All right, here we go, kids, gather round. A brand new sound to praise the one who has the crown. In today's lesson, we'll talk about the Holy Bible, the most important book we all need for survival. The Bible is God's message for this world. It's for every man and woman, every boy and girl. And that message is that if we turn to Christ and place our trust in Him, we'll have eternal life. Now when we're at church, yeah, it's fun, it's cool. When we hear a lot of stories in Sunday school, like Jacob and Noah, Moses and Daniel, David and Jonah, Joseph and Samuel, but all the little stories tell one big story about the God who made all things for his glory. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero and his name is Jesus. Should we begin when God made the whole wide world just by speaking? By his great might, he said, let there be light. The light he called day and the dark he called night. He made the earth and the seas, the dirt and the seeds, the herds and the trees, the birds and the bees. But the big surprise God had up the sleeve on day number six created Adam and Eve. Made in the image of the beautiful most high. God told them, be fruitful and multiply. Everything's yours, but that tree do not try. Because in the day you eat it, you're surely going to die. I'm sure you know the rest. Yes, they failed the test. And ever since then, the world has been a big mess. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero, and his name is Jesus. When we read God's word today, the greatest saints had their flaws on full display. And it was written down for us in order that we may recognize that Christ is the only way. Adam ate forbidden fruit and lost his life. Abraham got scared and lied about his wife. Sarah laughed to herself when she heard God's promise. Rebecca encouraged her son to be dishonest. Aaron used craft to make a golden calf. Moses got mad, struck the rock with a staff. David sinned greatly, even lost his baby. And Jacob, he was just all around shady. The point is not to make light of our flaws, but to show that every one of us needs the cross. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero and his name is Jesus. I wasn't good enough, no. 
Do the King's Business This is Ken Ham, founder of the ministry that built a full-size Noah's Ark south of Cincinnati. We're living in perilous times. Many Christians, perhaps for the first time ever, are now understanding what God's Word means when it says this world is not our home. So while we're living here in this dark world, what should we do? Well, Jesus was once in a crowd that was expecting his kingdom to appear immediately. He told them a parable about a king with ten servants. The king gave each servant money and told them to do his business until he returns. And that's what we should do as well. We don't know when Jesus will return and make things right. But until he comes, let's do his business by sharing the gospel and discipling others for Christ. Plan your visit to the full-size Noah's Ark at the Ark Encounter when you go to AnswersRadio.com. Tour three decks of exhibits, explore the zoo, and more. Go to AnswersRadio.com.
Get Social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page as Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O dot C-O-M. Truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as Truth, the letter B, then Told Radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is Truth, the letter B only, not B-E, Told Radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us, and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio.
Ding to go to Kennesaw State University. Frio, how long is this travelogue going to continue? Well, we're almost at our destination, which actually is you. But the weather forecast, burr a little chilly. You can't expect anybody to stand around talking to a tall, skinny stranger when it's only going to be 55 degrees. So we decided to cancel it and shoot our regularly scheduled Wretched TV shows. But Sebastian said, hey, I've got an idea based on the schedule. We're doing a special shoot next Wednesday. Why don't you just take the day and write? He suggested that because I've got a book deadline, and wow, is it pressing. (laughs) And so I mulled on the option to shoot TV shows, come into the office, do my responsibilities, or... Go right. I decided uh, I'm going to go right. And so I spent eight hours writing a new book, all the while thinking, ooh, all the stuff that I could be doing, all of the things that I could be getting accomplished if I were just at the office fulfilling my responsibilities. And that leads us to the Little River Band. songs in your life that just automatically catapult you back in time? I do, and this is one of them. I think it might have been 1978 when this song came out. Real, when is this going to end? It was 1978 when this came out, and I must have been having a good year. In fact, I think it was kind of the turn, the linchpin in my life, because, well, let's just say the three-stepfather rotation dance that we did at home wasn't always joyful, but 1978, things changed when I was sent away to school. (laughs) That's literally what happened. And this music must have been playing, and I must have been going through a good season. Because as I was walking home from writing the book, I had my earphones in, and this song came on, reminiscing. And immediately, I had a flood of, oh, That was such a good, what made that such a good time? And I concluded it was because, and this was a fallacious conclusion, because I didn't have any responsibilities like I do today. I didn't have the worries back then. So it got me to thinking, what were my responsibilities then and now? Then I concluded, biblically, you're finally getting to the Bible! I concluded biblically, I have no responsibilities, none, and neither do you. If you're thinking, wait a second, what just happened here? I did not see this exit ramp being taken. Think about the doctrine of sovereignty. Are you responsible for anything turning out any way? And the answer to that is no. The best laid plans can be a disaster. Poorly planned affairs can suddenly turn out magnificent. Why? Because you're not responsible, and I'm not responsible. All I can be and all you can be is a more biblical word, faithful. That's what you're called to. That's what I'm called to. And so as I started to muse on this, I started to think through my concerns du jour, which are also the concerns of the day. 
Oh, I didn't get this done. Wait a second. Hold on. I didn't get that done. Wait, 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 wait. Hold on. Let's relive the decision-making process. Sebastian says, take the day to go writing someplace. We can make up the shoots another time. Ooh, I don't know. I've got this and I've got that. But I thought it through. I was desiring to be responsible. I measured the importance of the things that needed to get done. There was the urgent, and then there was the super urgent. And I faithfully chose to put my efforts toward writing the book and not toward going into the office. What if you could get rid of your kitchen garbage at the push of a button? Hey, I'm Matt from Pila, and I want to introduce you to my friend. And that's where my responsibility ends, with faithfulness. Let's just say, while I was away, the ministry house burned down. Things went kafritz. Shows didn't get delivered to networks. There were people who were upset that I wasn't there to be in a meeting. I'm not responsible for those outcomes. I made a faithful decision, and I can then rest, and so can you. This command to not be responsible might start decreasing the anxiety in your life. It might start bringing it down when you realize that you and I do not make good gods. We are not running the planet. You're not running your home. You're not running your kids. You're not responsible for anything because God is sovereign and he's doing whatever he wills, and he simply calls you to be faithful. And that means as you go about making decisions every day, just think it through with the faculties that God has provided to you. They're not infallible, but, Lord, you know my heart. I'm desiring to be faithful to you. I'm going to choose to do this. I will trust you for the outcome. And then you can get back to being joyful and happy again and not weighed down by the carking cares of your day. You can have joy. And speaking of the carking cares of the day, which are also the carking cares, to sure, <laughs> have you been consuming a lot of Henny Penny news? Have you been listening to a fair amount of negative prognostications about the future of Western civilization? Oh, it's all going up in flames. Please note. Christians are not to be naive. We don't stick our heads into the cultural or political sand and pretend it doesn't exist. But we cannot, I mean it, we cannot let it rob us of joy. Jesus wants us to have joy, even in the midst of a collapsing society. You say, but by the future, this is going to be awful. Perhaps, but you're not responsible for it. God is. So while you're here, be faithful to the tasks and the assignments that he's given to you, and then you can rest and not be bummed out all the time. You're, you're not responsible, so stop thinking that you are. Let me ask you a question. Let's just say that the economy comes collapsing down. That's a bummer. Question, uh, first of all, are, are you responsible for the performance of the stock market? <laughs> That's a ridiculous question, isn't it? And yet we tend to think somehow my sentiments about it will affect the outcome. A question. The stock market crumbles. Are your sins still forgiven? Hmm. Your child is a bit of a prodigal. 
does God still love you? Your marriage is perhaps a little bit chilly. Does God still have warm affection for you because you are in Christ? You see, we really, really shouldn't be worried about anything when we remember that our biggest problem is solved positionally. We are safe. We are secure. We are loved. We are forgiven. We are empowered. We are being changed in the inner man, and we should be joyful because of all that Jesus has done and how he continues to be responsible, running the planet for my good and for his glory. May I ask you a question? Have you been perhaps a little short on joy these days? Maybe it's time to do some reminiscing. That's not how I wanted to end this. It's time to stop being responsible. This is Wretched Radio. What you are watching is a snip. That was from Wretched with Todd Frio. And I'm going to do next is Todd Frio. This is a witness Wednesday. If God wrote you a letter and sent it to you, would that be sufficient for you to say, this is what God is communicating to me and this is what he is revealing to me as truth? Yeah. What if I said he did, and it's called the Bible? He wrote that? Question, has God spoken? I believe so. How? I don't know. He hadn't spoken directly to me, but I know a lot of people that would say that he's spoken. Because they hear a voice, perhaps? I don't know if it's a voice or if it's a feeling, but there's a message. How's about a written document? Would that be an acceptable communication? If God wrote you a letter and sent it to you, would that be sufficient for you to say, this is what God is communicating to me, and this is what he is revealing to me as truth? Yeah. What if I said he did, and it's called the Bible? He wrote that? I thought it was... Yeah. Oh, great question. The doctrine of inspiration says that men wrote down exactly what God wanted them to write while never violating their personalities. So they were actually writing while God was inspiring them. Um, the Greek word actually is like the wind that fills a sail. The Holy Spirit filled them to write down what God wanted them to write down. So they acted as real human beings under the inspiration of God to get you communication from God called the Bible. So now the question is, if the claim of the Bible is it's God's letter to you, how do we know that God wrote it? Good question. I don't know. I would suggest to you we look inside of its pages to see if what it says about itself is true. For instance, if I said to you, the president lives in the White House, there's a statement. I could prove it to you by taking you to Washington, D.C. We go up to the White House lawn. We look in the windows. Oh, there's the president. I just proved to you that the president lives in the White House by showing you the president lives in the White House. The Bible says it's God's inspired word. I think if you look inside of its pages, it either sub- 
it supports that claim or it doesn't. So, is the Bible God's communication to you? Because if it is, it has some pretty important things to say about the purpose of our life, how we're supposed to live, what the point of it is, how we're to treat each other, and what's going to happen when we die. So tell me, do you think the Bible has the ability to prove itself to be supernatural? Yeah. How? I don't know. It's, I mean, it's, but it, let's, we can figure this out, I think. What if men spoke about something that happened much later that actually came true? In other words, it was prophetic. How many of those prophecies would have to come true before you went, you know what, there's something special about this book, because maybe once in a while somebody can get something right. Like I could say, in 200 years, there's going to be another world war. I might be right. But what if I did that hundreds of times? You'd have to go, dude, know something. Right? The Bible has hundreds of prophecies. And here's, here's one for you to consider. This is from a book in the Bible. I want you to tell me what book you think it might be. Right? It says that there was a man who did not have a form of comeliness. In other words, he wasn't a good-looking guy. And he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And he was sacrificed as a lamb. He didn't open up his mouth, never uttered a word. We thought that he was paying for his own sins, but he was paying for our sins. The Bible says that. Do you know where it, where it describes that? I do not. Do you know who it's describing? Jesus? Yeah, describing Jesus. That was written in 700 B.C. before Jesus Christ lived by a prophet named Isaiah, who meticulously described exactly what Jesus Christ would do to save his people, die as a lamb that was led to the slaughter. Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Do you remember in the Bible, maybe you remember these stories in youth group, all the lamb sacrifices that took place, you know, killing of lambs, mm. Passover, they had to kill a lamb so that death would pass over. Those were all pointing to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. A sacrifice of a lamb or a bull or a goat, it can't forgive sins. It requires a special blood. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who died to take away the sins of the world. That's what the Bible is about. And here's how you can trust it. Because of Easter. You know what Easter is, right? That, yeah, Jesus Christ died on Easter, and then three days later he rose. Yeah. He died on Good Friday, and then he rose. Oh, he rose on Easter. Three, that's right, he rose on oh, Easter, okay. right? So we, we celebrate something called Resurrection Sunday. And here's how you can stake your eternity on that. The men who lived with him saw him get murdered brutally, beaten to a pulp, hung on a cross publicly. Everybody saw him die, and then they saw him alive three days later. And they were never willing to recant. Under the threat of death, they still held their testimony because they weren't just believing a rumor. They saw it with their own eyes, and they wrote down meticulous details of that so that you could have a communication from God, so that you can know what the point of your life is and what's going to happen to you when you die. That's your Christian faith. So the question is, is that the true faith? You know, when you're born into Islam, that's your identity. <laughs> I don't know. Because yeah. if it's true, 
trust in Jesus Christ, you will have no part in God's kingdom. You won't go to heaven. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. In other words, every other religion is wrong. I'm it. I'm the only one that you should believe in. Put your trust in me, your sins are forgiven, and you live. Don't, and you will perish on the day of judgment. That's a big deal. So Jesus kind of lays it down really hard, and he then would say to you, sitting on a bench on this gorgeous day, you need to make a decision about what you're going to do with that information. You're either going to believe in Christ totally and fully, or you're going to reject him and pay the consequences for that disbelief. That's kind of a big deal, wouldn't you say? Yeah. Let me try to reason with you for one more moment. Can you hang in there with me for this? Yeah. Because this is going to get a little brutal. All right? All right. Jesus said, you've heard it said of old, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say, if you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. In other words, God doesn't just see our sexual escapades. He sees our fantasy life, our pornographic thoughts, the desires of when we look at a woman and have sexual thoughts about her. He's going to judge us for that. So here's a question for you. Would you be guilty of committing that sin, looking with lust? Um, it's because There's not a guy alive who hasn't. Well, I know that. I'm not denying that. I'm just saying, like, sometimes your mind starts to wander, and then you got to reel it back in. So it's not always, like, on purpose that I'm looking at someone and thinking whatever. Regardless of how you get there, we do it, right? Yeah. So that's true. God sees you as an adulterer at heart. Hold on. Not done. The Bible says, and Jesus said, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit murder. But I say, if you call somebody a fool, you're in danger of judgment. And then the Bible goes on to say you're a murderer at heart. So if you've ever been angry at somebody, a bad driver, your parents, a sibling, somebody not showing up for baseball, if you've been unrighteously angry, you're a murderer at heart. Have you ever been angry at somebody? I have. Me too. All right. Have you always spoken absolute, perfect truth, or have you ever told lies? I've told lies. Have you ever stolen anything? Once I can remember. Doesn't matter the value. It's about the heart, the intention, right? It's the act, not so much the object. All right. God and his name. Have you ever used his name in kind of a low way, kind of as a swear word? Uh, a blasphemy. Right. Has God always been first in your life? Not always. Okay, so here's what I just did. I just opened up like six commandments for you. I want you to imagine now, someday, after you've lived your life, God calls your number. You stand before God. The books are opened up, and he sees it all. No excuses, no chin boogie. He knows it all. Do you think he would say that you're an innocent or a guilty man? I guess from that you say I'm guilty. Me too. Yeah, because we break his laws, so we're guilty criminals. If that's true, and God is just, and we've established that he is because we get justice, should God reward you and take you to heaven, or should he punish you by sending you to hell? I guess by that standard he should punish me. That's what the Bible says. That nobody does good, no, not one. Nobody seeks after God. All of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags, because even when we do a nice thing, they tend to have bad motives. 
And even if they don't, they're still offered to God with dirty hands. So we just have nothing to bring to God but our guilt. That's where Jesus dying on a cross comes in. He took the punishment you and I deserve. He took the wrath that is aimed currently at you, my friend. He took the bullet, if you will. He took God's wrath upon himself. So here's here's the offer that he has for you today. You give him your rap sheet, your criminal record. You come clean to admit, I'm not good. I'm a bad man. I'm a dirty man. And I deserve hell. But you trust that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh who died to save you from the wrath that is to come. And you put your trust in him. And the Bible says you're going to go from death to life. You're going to go from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved son. You will be a child of the devil no more. You will now be a child of God. Your slate will be forgiven. And he will actually give you his resume. All the righteous deeds that he accumulated, he gives it to you because he's that good. So you can be seen as the righteousness of God in Christ so that God can be just and the justifier of those who believe. So you can be totally forgiven seen as righteous in the eyes of God, go to heaven when you die, and then spend the rest of your days living in response to the God who died to save you, which means you can still become an entrepreneur, but now the meaning is you're serving God in it. You're doing it for him, not for yourself. You do it for the one who died to save you, and that will give you more satisfaction, purpose, and joy than any system that the romantic philosophy could offer you. So now, this day, the Bible says, is the day of salvation. You now know what the Christian truth is about life and the afterlife. Nobody can make you believe that. Nobody can force you to do anything. You can't get in on your parents' coattails. It would be between you and God what you're going to do with this information. So I would ask, in closing, what do you think you're going to do with this information that was just given to you by a perfect stranger? A perfect stranger? An emperor, you get what I mean. Hey, you don't know me from Adam, right? So you don't know me, but I've tried to share with you exactly what the Bible teaches. So my question is, what are you going to do with this knowledge that you now have today? I have to do some thinking, for sure. Like with any knowledge, like if you go to school, I learn something, take it home, I think about it. I'd understand it. That's fair. Totally reasonable. Try to do me this favor if you could. Don't let the day pass without finishing your homework assignment. Because here's what will happen. If you're feeling at all convicted of your sin, if you're starting to realize, wow, I have not been doing this the right way, I do need to be forgiven, I do believe in God, and I need to be brought into a relationship with him, you wait till tomorrow, it just becomes a little bit dimmer, your conscience will get a little bit duller, sins won't be so sinful to you, and your heart is going to get harder. That's why the Bible says, today is the day of salvation. So as much as I could like shake you to go, dude, think about this today, like really urgently, don't die in your sins. Don't reject this offer of God's kindness presented to you because your eternity depends on it. That's what I try to do with you. Make it a matter of urgency. Fair enough? Yeah, it's really... You're a smart guy. You're going to do just fine in life. You're going to get whatever business you get into. 
You're going to get all of that stuff, but what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Who cares how much stuff you get or how much fun you have? If you die and you perish, it's just not, it's just not worth it. What's worth it is considering these claims and responding to them urgently. That was from Wretched, and you can find it on wretched.org, and on YouTube as Wretched, and they have a radio show, TV show, so check that out, org. Here's some meaningless control here on Truth Be Told Radio, and... What I'm gonna do next is gonna play a song for you. Let me start this off with a hallelujah to Jesus, the sovereign ruler. This is not a rumor. Got the truth, so we about to school you. Check out a style maneuver. Shout it to you like the loudest roof. Christ brought us up from out the sewer. We don't have to doubt the future. Crafting our verses as we bask in his worship. You asking the purpose, partly to fetch hats from the furnace. Through Jesus' extravagant service, immaculate purchase. He was smashing the serpent, and we only scratching the surface. He proceeded was conceived in the womb of a virgin. The sun emerges in the manger while the angels serenade him. It's the birth of the Savior, the greater and Came a man, came as a lamb, and would be executed to execute the plan to substitute the sand. In the place of the wicked on the cross, he was lifted, but we considered him stricken and afflicted, just like the prophets predicted. He came at the proper moment to stop his opponent and lay down his life to offer atonement. He's the most magnificent, the total antithesis of insufficient, the blessed, the glorious, splendid, transcendent, difficult to comprehend, independent of space and time, but presently present, suspending the heavens with speech. From coast to coast, he speaks peace to wind and seas, got heavenly hosts easily. Posted on bended knees, controls the cosmos with the most authority. So we both in the most exalted King Christ supreme. He's the sovereign thriller, the awesome healer, the law fulfiller, the solemn killer, the fraud revealer. No God is realer, yeah. When you're taking your time in the scripture, with the gate is a prominent picture. See his light shining bright in the night, and his bright in the might, and a diamond in the mixture. See his name at all the renown, though. When he came for the loss that he found, though, he was tamed and floss all around, but remained for the manger, the cross, or the crown. Yo, Satan had a trick hold on him. Fight for the rope, but open in. All to the eyes of the S to the E to the N, that's what we hoping in. Risen on his spell check, the risen king can rinse clean the most rebellious. I was hell bound, now I'm spellbound. Word is born, I'm a bond servant to the word of life. Uh, call me a sellout, I was bought with a price. We got a hope that won't fail us when we return to the dust. We will rise up just like the one who justified us. It's not wishful thinking when the truth's sinking. We are clinging to the promises that God bringing an everlasting kingdom. Nothing can compare to the worth of what we inherited. Nothing in heaven on earth can measure what Christ merited. The skies declare the affairs of his glorious care. The God who is there, who's aware, who delights in our prayer. His purposes are permanent and perfectly proportionate. Everything that orbits around his glory subordinate. He is the most excellent one, intrinsic, infinite son. Preeminent the name par excellence, prenom phenomenon. He's beyond phenomenon, you see. The father of cosmology, the abba of astronomy. He's potter, we are pottery. It's shocking Jesus died for me. The father, he adopted me and constantly provides for me. Whether or not I got degrees, you gotta see his odyssey. From sovereignty and lottery to poverty and robbery to resurrected bodily apocalyptic prophecy he's stopping all the mockery and scholarly snobbery that don't acknowledge him properly you ought to be on bended knee before the preeminent it's awfully arrogant to reject him to your death 
instrument Study the development from Old to New Testament You'll find a theme that's prevalent from age to age It's relevant, crisis on its center stage Forget religious sentiments that center on man But something less is what you're settling He is the most excellent, exercising benevolence And blessing a remnant with the benefits of his inheritance yeah. The sin of sinners that separated and segregated That severed the relations between man and his maker And placed Christ on his costly cross And compensated his life, death and resurrection Emancipated and gave us freedom from it all Freedom from the effects of the fall Freedom from Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden And from the law So the saints stand and applaud His grace and glorious cause With hands raised, praising His name Singing glory to God <laughs> That's all I got for Trippy Toll Radio. The got with Yes, Yes, Friends and the VIP. Bye for now. Yeah.